All right, if you guys want to open up Genesis, Genesis chapter 21. Kelly's going to come, she's going to read the whole chapter, what chapter to us. Genesis chapter 21. Is that good? Perfect. All right. Genesis chapter 21. A little higher. Perfect. Is that good? Genesis chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation." Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. 
When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is the word of the Lord. It is, and I don't know what the right word is to use, interesting, perplexing, how on the tail end of one trial, we can often be immediately faced with another. How we can go through long seasons of suffering or trial, problems in life, we're faithful, we trust God through them, finally they come to an end and we feel some sort of relief, only to immediately find ourselves facing yet another trial, another form of suffering, something else that's just not going right or the way we thought they should be or could be. And I feel like that's what happens here in Genesis chapter 21. I mean, last week we celebrated, right? Isaac is finally born. We still have balloon shrapnel in the ceiling that represents that Isaac is born, right? He's here after 25 years of waiting. We celebrated last night, last week, six things. That God is so marvelous and wonderful that nothing is too hard for him. He keeps all of his promises that his timing, I think we have a slide for this. We have a slide with these six things from last Sunday that he keeps all of his promises. He keeps them in his timing. He keeps them personally. He keeps them supernaturally. He keeps them based in grace, and he keeps them for our joy. So there's a sense in which God is celebrated here at a, with a great feast in chapter 8, or in verse 8, um, with Isaac, because Isaac's birth, and you can almost see uh, Abraham and Sarah dancing around with celebration. Our son is finally here. And then finally, even in the midst of Sarah still laughing, she overhears a different kind of laughter. <laughs> she overhears a laughter that's not a laughter filled with joy, but a laughter that is filled with mocking. Look at verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Evidently, the laughter flowing from Ishmael's mouth was not one of celebration. It was one that was communicated as a way of threatening. There was a threat coming out of his mouth. Galatians 4.29 tells us this about this passage. It tells us what really was going on. It says, he, Ishmael, who was born according to the flesh, persecuted him. That's Isaac, who was born according to the 
spirit. So it's not just laughter. He was persecuting him. He was literally running after him, mistreating him. And to get the fullness of the picture, at this point, Ishmael is probably 14, 15, 16. And Isaac is three. So I don't know how you feel about a 15-year-old picking on a three-year-old, but that's pretty bad. And, and that seems to be what's going on here. And this is what has Sarah so upset over this mockery that's going on. And she knows there's something going on here more than that. She understands that Ishmael may not stop at anything in order to make sure he's the only one who gets the inheritance. And so she's scared, I believe, for even Isaac's own life. And so she declares, cast out the slave woman with her son. Cast them out. Now, you got to remember, back up for just a minute, that God has made two promises to Sarah and Abraham, is that they will have offspring and they will have land. Offspring and land. And so in this chapter, if you want to outline it, the first half is about the promise of the offspring being threatened, and the second half is about the land being threatened, him not getting the land. So that's kind of how the chapter divides in half. So this first part is all about the offspring being threatened. What is going to happen? There's a competition going on. Right now it's between a 15-year-old and a 3-year-old, and you pretty much know who's going to win if someone doesn't intervene. And so Sarah puts on her mom hat, and she intervenes. She goes to work. She wants to protect her son. Abraham is not too happy about this, but God tells him to go along with it in verse 11. Look there with me. And this thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For though Isaac shall, be your, shall your offspring be named, and I will make a great nation out of the son of the slave woman, also because of he is your offspring. So Abraham gets this command from God and then we read on that Abraham does it. He takes bread and he takes water and he gives it to Hagar and to Ishmael and he sends them off to wander in the wilderness. He, he casts them out and all Abraham has to comfort him at that point as he watches them walk off is God promised he was going to be with Ishmael. God promised he's going to make him into a great nation. So once again, we find Abraham needing to trust God regarding his son. Once again, we find Abraham needing to believe that God will keep his promise to his son. Once again, one test comes right on the heels of another test. 25 years of waiting for God to fulfill his promise. God fills his promise. Ah, only to find out moments later, he's taking his other son and sending him off into the wilderness with some bread and some water. I don't know if you ever feel that way. I don't know if you've ever experienced one crisis is finally over, only to find another one is quickly on its way. It has been said that you are either in a crisis, you just finished a crisis, or you're headed for a crisis. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> but it's true. That's how life is. It's, it's the promise from Jesus that we will face trials of various kinds. Financial trials, health trials, relational trials, situational trials. Just trials in trying to process our own lives and what's going on in them. And at times I feel like we can get over that hump. We can begin to even celebrate the change. And then, oh no, here we go again with something else. And that seems to be what happens with Abraham here as he casts out his son into the wilderness. And then 
the trial really turns tragic in verse 15. It goes from bad to worse. Verse 15 says that when the water in the skin was gone, that she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of my child. I mean, that's just horrible. I mean, this, this goes from bad, really, to worse. I wondered, why is he dying and not her? I wonder if he said, Mom, no, you take the rest of the water. Mom, you finish the bread. I wonder if that's why he's dying before she is. I wonder if that's why he's dehydrating and starving to death before she is. And she begins to cry out to God. I don't know if you can hear her cries for her son. Maybe you've been there. I have been in the hospital when parents receive news that their child hasn't made it. And the wailing and the crying is like nothing I've ever heard before. I've been in funeral service where parents have screamed out with pain over the death of losing their children. And it is gut-wrenching. And I'm sure that Sarah's cries pierced the silence of the wilderness that day as she ached for her son. And then, when all hope is gone, God comes in. God comes in to the rescue in verse 17. And as I read verse 17, I want you to notice what God does. I want you to look at the activity of God in these verses. And God heard, and God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of the Lord called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So the story changes again very quickly as God intervenes and does four things. Did you catch them? Four ways God is at work. He heard Ishmael's suffering. He heard his cry. He opened Sarah's eyes. He provides a well for her and him. And then it says God is with Ishmael. So God hears. God opens eyes. God provides. And God is with us. So God does here for Ishmael and for Hagar. God rescues them. He rescues them from death. He gives them life. He takes them at the brink of dying and he gives them a whole new start. He hears and provides for them so they can live on to fulfill his mission for their lives. So it ends triumphant. When you read stories like this, I think it is often helpful to ask the question, why? Why? Why, God? Why do it this way? Why not have Abraham not listen to Sarah and let them just stay at home? Why not send them out with enough water and bread to keep them sustained for months or years? Why not show Sarah the well sooner 
before Ishmael is about to die. I mean, is this not the question we ask when we walk through trials? That's a question I ask. Why? Why does the car break down again? Why is that person sick again? Why so much strife? Why the financial trouble? Why is life so hard? Why another problem? Sometimes I feel it more for others when I watch them go through another trial and another trial and another trial, and I think, God, what are you doing? Why? You ever been there? Well, I'm going to stick with the same answer that I've been giving as we've walked our way through the book of Genesis, and I know it does not answer all of our questions because God is sovereign and has his own plan. But I do think, as we've been looking at these different lives and these different journeys, that it seems that God does what God does so that people will know God the way God wants people to know them, to know him. That's what it seems like. It seems that God wants Hagar and Ishmael to know God the way God wants them to know God. And God wants them to know God as the one who hears, the one who opens eyes, the one who provides life and rescue, and the God who is with those he makes promises to. And that is why God does this. Listen, you won't know God as the God who hears until you need God to hear you. You won't know God as the God who opens eyes until you realize you're blind and not seeing something the way that he wants you to see it. You won't know God as the one who rescues you and gives you life until you find yourself trapped and hopeless, feeling defeated and like life is not worth going on. You won't know God as the God who is with you unless you desperately need God to be with you. And so God does things for that purpose in your life. So that you and I won't say nothing's too hard for, or wonderful for God. So he does things in our lives so we'll, we'll see that. We'll experience him that way. That we'll see him as our only hope. Listen, all of us, I think, find ourselves in situations or trials that are unimaginably painful. And no two trials are exactly the same. No two encounters with this life are the same And I think it's clear that God puts you through a trial so you'll know God the way he wants you to know God. And then God puts me through a different trial so I'll know God the way God wants me to know God. And then he puts us in community so together we can know God a way that we would never know God on our own. We can rub shoulders with other people. We can hear their story. We can find out their trial. We can watch them walking with faith through it. We see them trusting God. We say, look at how they trust God. They see God different than me, but they do it. And that together we see what God is like in ways you would never see him otherwise. So embrace your trial and see it as good for you and see it as good for me and see it as good for us. Don't think sharing your burden, your burden or your trial is a burden to the rest of the church. It's not. You're teaching us things about God we would not learn on our own. So share your trials. Let's walk with them together. And let's learn things about God that God has for us to learn about himself. But there's another reason why this story is recorded here for us. And God tells us very specifically what the point of the story is in the book of Galatians. So if you don't mind opening up into the book of Galatians, it's going to go on the screen too, but I want to have you turn there if you have your Bibles. Because in the book of Galatians, God tells Paul the reason this story is here. Galatians chapter 4.
Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 is a commentary on how to understand Genesis 21. Galatians 4, 21. If you're there, say there. Thank you. All right, Genesis 4, 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So Paul is talking to Jewish Christians who are thinking they'd rather go back and live under the law and the things the law teaches and to obey the law. And so he's saying, you desire to be under the law. Do you listen to what the law says? Now he's going to tell us what the law says. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. So here you are. See where we are? We just got transported right into here from Genesis 21. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. I want you to take note of the words slave and free, slave and free, slave and free. If you underline or circle stuff in your Bible, circle and underline slave and free. So Abraham has two sons, one by the slave woman, one by the free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. So what is Paul going to do now? Is He is going to look at the story in Genesis 21, and he's going to allegoricalize it. That's not a word. I made it up. Everybody knows what an allegory is? Where, where are my English majors, English people? An allegory is a, just a story that symbolizes or has parts of it that symbolize and paint a picture of something spiritual or something moral. So that's what he's doing. He's saying, Sarah, I'm sorry, Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and Isaac, they live their lives, but it's allegorical. I'm going to tell you something that their, their lives looked like. Their lives mirrored something. Their lives painted a picture of something. And I'm going to tell you now what that is that their lives painted a picture of. So verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai is where God gave Moses the law. So it's referring to the law again. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not, be who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the child of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall inherit with the son, shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Now, I understand that was long, and so I'm going to give you the cliff notes of the allegory. You ready? So here's what's going on here. I think it's simple, and I know most of you probably 
connect what was going on. What Paul is saying is that in the story in Genesis, Hagar and Ishmael's lives were meant to paint a picture of slavery. And Sarah and Isaac's lives were meant to paint a picture of freedom, what it means to be free. And what Paul is saying is that is why it says, cast them out. If you saw that in verse 30, he says, cast them out. This is why God had them cast out. It was to paint a picture of slavery and the law being cast out through the new covenant. So that's why the story in the Old Testament existed. It's to show us God is able to keep his promise to Abraham regarding Ishmael, because he does, give us a visual living example of the law and slavery being cast out, and yet still rescue Hagar and Ishmael from death. Do you see the multitasking God, God does here? So yes, he sends them out in this trial, and he does it to paint a picture for us, but then he sweeps in and he rescues them from certain deaths so they can go on to fulfill the promise that he has for them. I mean, honestly, if you, if you really start to tease the story out and what Paul says here, you realize there's nothing too hard for God. The, the way the story is crafted, there's nothing too marvelous or wonderful. God keeps his promise, he gives us a picture, and he still rescues them. So that's the point of the story. So their lives are, are showing us something as they walk out of Abraham's presence and they're cast out into the wilderness. But I think the pivot point for us this morning is seen in verse 29. Because verse 29 takes it, so we just went from Genesis to Galatians, and now we're going to go to Galatians right to us. So look at verse 29. It says, he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that's Isaac, so also it is now. So also it is now. In other words, the persecuting hasn't ended. The laughter hasn't ended. The laughter continues as Ishmael, the slave, laughed at the freedom of Isaac, so today there's laughing happening from slavery to your freedom. Slavery is mocking your freedom. Slavery continues to laugh at the fact that you are free. So Ishmael's persecuting and laughing at Isaac really is meant to paint a picture of something that's happening now, which is your freedom in Jesus is being laughed at by slavery. And I think this can happen in two ways. The first, I think, way this can happen is actually in local churches or in people in churches where we create laws for people to obey. And you don't feel like you're free anymore and you feel as if your freedom is being laughed at or mocked or persecuted by those who have their own little church law, whatever that might be. And we all have our experiences, whether it's drinking laws or how, how we have to dress in order to gather with God's people laws or dating laws or date night laws or how to educate your children laws or women working outside of the home laws or politic laws or mask wearing laws or vaccination laws and the laws go on and on and on that churches can have. And maybe you know what ones you're more aware of. And when those happen in a church and we create these own little laws of things we have to do in order to accept each other, it's basically a laughter. It is a mocking over your freedom because we are free. Free. 
But there's a second kind of mocking or laughing, and I, I'm more aware of this one than I am the first one. It's that mocking that happens in my heart. It's the mocking that happens in my head. See, right now, there is Ishmael laughter happening in your head and in your heart. It is your old nature. It is your flesh laughing at your spirit. It is your old slave child in you that's in your heart mocking the free child. you got two little kids in your heart, the free one and the slave. And every time you start to have fun and enjoy the freedom you have in Christ, the slave child comes along and says, oh, no, no, you better, and then he fills in the blank. Or, oh, no, no, don't you remember what you just did? And he fills in the blank. See, the slave child is laughing at you for believing that you're free. He's laughing at you for believing you're free from slavery. That you're free from the slavery of proving to God and others that you are good and righteous based on your works and behavior. And that's what's going on inside of all of us, I think, at different times. The spirit, the free child, wants you to believe that being a covenant sealed by the blood of Christ, child of God, is all it takes to be his heir. And that you are deeply loved 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, until the day you die. They want you to believe that you're free. You're free. You're free from condemnation. You're free from shame and guilt. You're free from needing to impress God. Free to enjoy his love. Free to enjoy his grace. Free to dance and sing and praise and celebrate your God. And the slave child in you laughs at you for trying to embrace that freedom. It mocks you. It holds you back. It tries to condemn you. It tries to tell you that no, Jesus' blood and work is not enough. And so there's this laughter in our souls. The slave child laughing at you for believing that God's grace is great, that his love surpasses knowledge. Laughing at you for believing how ridiculous it is that God would accept you based on someone else's work. I don't know how you receive that. I don't know if you hear the slave child whisper to you, you're, you're a bad mother. You're a, a loser dad. God will never really be happy with you. You're a failure. You're, you're not good enough, and you'll never be good enough. You will keep doing that same thing over and over again. You need to do more. You need to try harder. What is your problem that you just keep sinning? And the slave child goes on and on and on. Are you aware of the laughter in your soul that mocks your freedom? Be on guard. Be on guard for the laughter that condemns you for believing that you're an heir, a precious child of God, deeply loved and completely forgiven. May God help us as this story continues to echo into our hearts to believe what is true about us and about God's perspective of us. Let's go back to our story and finish up Genesis 22, 21. In verse 22, the scene changes from the air being threatened to now the land being threatened. And evidently Abimelech is aware of everything that has happened in chapter 1. And in verse 22, he says to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. He must have seen Isaac born when he was 100 years old. 
He must have seen Ishmael and Hagar being rescued. And he says, God's with you, man. In everything you do, God is with you. Now, we could pause here and bring some application. Because some will teach that this applies, that God is with you in all that you do. And if he is, then you should prosper materialistically. Right? And that's happened to Abraham. Right? Everything he did was just prosperous. And he had tons of money and tons of everything he could ever want. And if God's with you, he'll do the same. Others will teach that God is really not with you the same way he is with Sarah and Abraham. He's really not. That was unique to Sarah and Abraham as part of redemptive history. And so I just want to be clear and tell you that both of those are lies. Both of those are wrong. Neither of those are true. God is with you in all that you do. God is with you in all that you do, like he was with Abraham and Sarah. In fact, he has made a blood covenant with you And this blood covenant is better than the one that he made with Abraham and Sarah. Because it's a Jesus blood covenant. And so he is with you in all that you do. But he's not necessarily with you in all that you do, meaning you are going to be blessed materialistically for the rest of your life. But he's going to be with you in the reality that the Spirit of God is living in you. And he's going to be with you in everything so that you have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faith and self-control and repentance and wisdom and praise and generosity in everything. So that whatever the trials are you walk through, people look at you and go, somebody's with you. Because nobody can handle that trial the way you're handling it. God must be with you. So when people see you facing a trial, suffering, sin, and they see you doing it with faith and joy and hope, they're going to conclude that something is up with you. They're going to ask. When they do, it gives us a chance to say, well, God is with me through my trial and my suffering. But you also need to know that you don't need to do that perfectly. It'd be easy to throw a law on you. So when you go through your trial, make sure you do it with joy and love and peace and patience so everybody will see it and then you can give God praise. Because that could be another law. And I love it that Abimelech quickly goes from God is with you in everything you do to doing what? I, I love what he does. Look, look at verse 23. Look what he says to Abraham and think about why you think he's saying this. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants. Why would he think that Abraham would ever deal falsely with him? Answer? What did Abraham do to Abimelech? He lied to him. And what were God's words to Abimelech for believing the lie? You will surely die. You're a dead man, Abimelech. So I love it. Abraham is there with Isaac, and the conversation goes like this. Hey, everything you do, God is with you. And by the way, don't lie to me again. (laughs) I don't want to hear God say you're a dead man again. It's like he's aware of the fact that God is with him, but he's also aware of the fact that Abraham's not perfect. And I think that should be true of us. (laughs) People should say God's with you, but I know you're really messed up, so I don't know how that works. And we can tell them it's because I need God, because I am messed up. God's not expecting perfection from us. He knows we're messed up, and he wants to use that as part of our story in order to help others see that God is with us even through our messed upness. 
So God seemed to see that with Abraham. Abimelech seemed to see that in Abraham's life and concluded that God is with you even though things in your life don't always seem perfect. So the chapter ends with this little resolution over this well, which seems so silly. It's like petty, you know, let's fight over. I, I dug this well, Abraham says, and Abimelech's like, well, I didn't even know, I, I didn't even know anything about this. And they have this little back and forth, and you think, how childish. But you've got to realize that with the well comes the land, and with the land is the well. So to have the well is to have the land, and to have the land is to have the well, and God promised them the land. So what's a jeopardy in the second part of this chapter is that he doesn't have the well, then he doesn't have the land. And so Abimelech and Abraham work out their deal. Abimelech walks off into the sunset, and Abraham has the well he dug and the land that God had given him. And then things are wrapped up in verse 33 with this explanation or this description of God. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. The everlasting God. Abraham watches all this unfold. I mean, think about the ups and downs. You have a son, finally, after 25 years, you're celebrating the party. Everyone's dancing and laughing and singing, only to hear somebody else laughing, knowing they're probably going to try to kill my kid. Then God tells you to let your wife your wife and your child go out into the wilderness they do they almost die then god comes and rescues them and then you're standing at a well with some guy who's ticked off at you because you lied to him about lying about your wife and now you want your well back and and it ends with that god is the everlasting god it's almost like of all the other stuff i got to go through i know one thing for sure god is the everlasting god meaning he has no beginning, he has no end. He is forever God. God always has been. God always will be. God acts according to his character all the time. So he's going to keep his promises. Nothing's too hard for him. He will always hear you. His eyes are always on you. He wants to open your eyes. He wants to provide you life. He wants to provide you rescue. He's everlasting. He doesn't change. Abraham plants a tree symbolically to say God is everlasting. This God who has helped me through all of this mess is going to be the same in the days to come, which of course can be very important when we get to the next chapter, when God asks, asks Abraham to do something crazy. Again, another trial, another test. But God is the everlasting God. That means everything we read about the character of God so far in Genesis is true today. We don't have to worry about him changing or doing something differently. And so I think we can sum up chapter 21 with the help of Galatians 4 and say this. The everlasting God keeps his covenant promises to set us free and to be with us in all that we do. The everlasting God keeps his covenant promises to set us free and to be with us in all that we do. He sets you free, but he's with you in all that he does. He sets you free, but he's there with you. He doesn't set you free to wander in the wilderness. He sets you free, and then he's right there with you to walk out your freedom. So this morning I ask, I don't know whether you feel the laughter of Ishmael. I don't know if you feel that mockery sometimes over your own sin or your own desire to be free or the reality that you are free and you feel condemned. But I pray that you'd embrace this story this morning and hear God say, you are free. 
free from trying to perform to impress God, free from trying to have your sins forgiven based on how many times you ask forgiveness, free to love and enjoy and walk with your God because he did it. The covenant is done and he is everlasting. And we need to sing about it. So I'm going to pray. The band's going to come and we're going to sing. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that we are free We thank you that we are no longer under the yoke of slavery. Thank you that we are no longer obligated to obey the law perfectly because Jesus, you already met that obligation because you did the law perfectly. So we declare this morning that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. We want to stand firm and not submit anymore to any man-made rules or authority. We look to you our everlasting God, the one who was and is and is to come. And so, Lord Jesus, help us when we hear the whispers of the slave child in our hearts. May we declare the freedom we have in Christ. Thank you that we can join you, Jesus. We can echo your words and say, it is finished. Our sin is dealt with Our chains are gone and we're free. Now help us to live in that and to celebrate it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.